Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our ninth True Crime Digest, and also what will be our shortest True Crime Digest. This is coming out on December 3rd. We're also going to release our Christmas Monsters episode today, and then we will see you guys in January because we're going to take the rest of December off. But before we do that, we are going to get into some important case updates. We're going to start with the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted for the murders of two people he killed, which were Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum. We talked about this in our last True Crime Digest update, but we're very disappointed with this result. Yeah. But we'll leave it at that. So we've discussed it on a few of our True Crime Digest episodes. But we're going to talk about Daniel Robinson. And as a reminder, he's a 24-year-old geologist. He left his worksite at Sun Valley Parkway in Cactus Road in Arizona on June 23rd and has been missing since. A month later, his Jeep was found, but he's still missing. His case seems to have caught the attention of the media more than it had been, which is very good because there's been a remarkable lack of action on, I think, on local law enforcement's part. Oh, for sure. So hopefully this will continue to push it into a direction where his family can learn more about what happened or at least have help in trying to search for him. So on October 31st, David, which is Daniel's father, posted that after 14 weeks of searches, Buckeye Police Department came out to one of the weekly searches. So Daniel's father shared a video of his press conference in front of the Buckeye Police Station. And the audio is a little bit spotty, but he spoke about Daniel as a person. He talked about how he loved football. He learned the French horn and he played the trombone. And remember, this was kind of a feat for him because he was born with only one hand. So just the fact that he was able to just accomplish so much and not let it get in the way of anything. He's just like a remarkable person. Yeah. He also called the police department out for their lack of urgency. He also reviewed the timeline. And so here's a couple of the takeaways from that. So first, when Daniel was originally reported missing, David was informed that police would be sending out a helicopter the following morning to look for Daniel, which feels like a long time to wait considering it's June in Arizona. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's enough time for one to run out of water and die from exposure, correct? Absolutely. I think it's because he was reported missing later in the day. So I'm guessing it was because it was getting dark and it just wouldn't be as easy to see him, perhaps. Fair, but they have spotlights. They do. So later, that search was canceled because Daniel was an adult and not suicidal. And it's an interesting thing to hear that because someone was not suicidal, they aren't going to go look for him because they're like, the assumption there is that he left voluntarily. And I'm not saying that you can't pick up and leave your life. This just doesn't seem like how any person would do it. No, like they wouldn't leave their car like that. And it's strange to think that. It's like when you say that like a five-year-old girl ran away. No. Right. And he wouldn't leave his car like that. Like if he was leaving his family for good and his friends and everything he's built, he wouldn't situate his car in such a fashion. Like that takes elaborate planning that I'm sure he didn't do. Also, like if you're going to fake your death, you could do it better than that. But anyway, so it really sounds like law enforcement didn't do much until Daniel's Jeep was found. So his father, David, mentioned that he was going out to a well by their gate, just hoping that Daniel would show up. He kept going there like he's going to come. And that is just so heart wrenching to me. And he also broke a few times when he was speaking. 
Yeah, talking about Daniel and just it kind of reminded me of Tim Miller in a sense. You know how Tim Miller would go into the field and wait for the killer to come back? Yeah. When he was talking and he's like, I would just go out and I guess there's, I don't know, a well in the desert is what I assume. I haven't been out that way. It's like pretty far out there. But yeah, he would just wait and hope. And it's just like, ugh, it's really sad, apparent to just not know what to do. Like there's nothing left to do but continue searching, right? Exactly. So after he was also talking about searches that him and his team and volunteers have been performing and that he's found evidence that could help other cases. And all of this was performed without the help of Buckeye Police Department. What he said some of the evidence was one of them included a skull and a pile of clothes and both were turned over to Buckeye PD to hopefully help in other investigations. David asked for additional information about Daniel's cell phone, his vehicle, GPS, street cameras that might have picked up the Jeep, you know, the day that he went missing. And he was told none returned any results. Detectives said that they were going to get a warrant for T-Mobile and for bank statements. And the warrants were canceled. And he was told that the judge would deny the request because there's no evidence of foul play. I feel like there's evidence, right? Yeah, I feel like there's ample evidence here. So David and his daughter were called into the police department at one point to ask if they had access to Daniel's bank account. They unfortunately only had limited access and they showed the police what they could. It was kind of hard to hear this press conference, but I believe he said USAA denied giving additional information to David. But on the other hand, it's kind of understandable because he's not listed on the bank account. So any bank would be unable to just be like, here's someone's bank account information. Fair. So detectives and authorities working on this should have warrants for this information. And it just blows my mind that they're not doing that. So let's go back to when they found Daniel's Jeep. They actually didn't tell Daniel's father until later that morning, because from what he said, quote unquote, they did not want to disturb his sleep. So in my head, that just like makes you think how serious they're taking this. You know, a father is looking for a son and they're like, well, we'll call him later about this giant discovery. Yeah, we wouldn't want to interrupt. And then also clothes were found a few feet away from the vehicle in a pile on the other side of a hill. So when they're saying there's no evidence of foul play, a couple things go through my head with these clothes, right? If they were found in a pile, someone must have put them in a pile. It's not like when he crashed, they would just land neatly in a pile. Yeah. Someone did this. Also, oddly enough, there was no blood found in his vehicle. So authorities told David that Daniel didn't sustain injuries and that he was probably wearing his seatbelt. But then they also said that Daniel might have suffered a severe head injury, and that would explain why he shed his clothes off. So I'm like, how are they telling him that, oh, there's no blood, he probably didn't sustain any injuries, but then, oh, he must have taken his own clothes off because he probably sustained a head injury. I just feel like they're just speaking whatever comes to mind to him instead of like really looking into what could have happened. Yeah, it feels eternally contradictory. Right. And then they said, yeah, he might have been delusional and then just walked away to rest somewhere. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. Also, during this press conference, Melissa Edmonds, who is Daniel's mother, spoke out for the first time, too. And then afterwards, the private investigator spoke. And we'll talk more on the private investigator in a few minutes. Also this month, David posted that the search that happened on November 6th, they uncovered more human remains in the desert. He does say confidently, though, that they do not belong to Daniel. And he posted like a little video of him in the PI and they mentioned that they found human femurs and a hip bone and that it was confirmed by medical examiners and Buckeye police that that's indeed what it was. And the police taped off the scene. 
my question when I first saw that the day that he posted it, I want to say it was the day after. So November 7th was like, how does he know it's not Daniel's? That's weird to me, unless they have some other way of like knowing for sure that could match or like the size, maybe. I don't know how they know it's not him. So on November 15th, there was a call to action to flood Buckeye PD phone demanding an investigation. And it seems like it's working. So on the 20th, there's another search and he had another press conference. It was at 9 a.m. that day. But from last I've seen, it just says video coming soon. And unfortunately, I was not able to attend. So we'll cover that next True Crime Digest when the details are released. On November 21st, David talks about a letter to Chief Hall requesting an invitation of the FBI into the case and his suspicious disappearance. The chief wrote back and said that he did, in fact, contact the FBI requesting for their help. Freaking finally. I'm hoping with the additional help, they're able to find more details onto what might have happened to him. A few other case details. Some of them we've kind of touched on. The vehicle traveled 11 miles after the airbags deployed. People who worked with Daniel described his behavior as odd the day he disappeared. Also that he was tired and wanted to rest. And so some people are discussing, well, maybe he did drive off to go take a break. Again, still no other details, though. It doesn't feel right, though. Like, it still doesn't feel right. So Amanda mentioned him earlier, but the private investigator is Jeff McGrath, and he has a history of working with accident investigations and reconstruction. He's a retired police officer, and he also did motorcycle traffic, and he was a DUI officer and a drug recognition expert. He also was a detective for vehicular crimes. He has skills to analyze and decipher collision evidence based off of his history, which makes sense, right? Like these are all things where you would understand what's it look like when someone crashes? What's it look like when someone crashes when they're inebriated versus when they saw a squirrel, right? Like I feel like different reactions from a person. Yeah. And his website too shows that he works with a team and how they make like diagrams They use math, and then they also use their computers to figure out how a collision would have happened. So just going back to when first in the investigation, they're like, oh, he was doing this. No further details with what would have happened to his car. And then when he looked at it, he's like, well, it was driven again. They tried to start it again. Like, there was a lot more happening. How many miles per hour he was going? I just kind of believe him a little bit more. I guess it also never occurred to me that there were experts in this way. Of course there are, right? But like... I think it was very savvy of David to find an expert who has this particular background. So Buckeye police handed over all evidence to the private investigator, Jeff McGrath Wild. During an interview, the news anchor asked Jeff if that was normal procedure. And he said he'd never seen that in his entire career as a private investigator or when he worked with law enforcement. He was told that they were done with the investigation. But they say now that they have an ongoing investigation. Yeah. How does one investigate when you give all of your evidence to someone else? I'm hoping that they meant summaries and pictures, not actual evidence. So Jeff also discussed how the desert is often used for doing kind of like whatever a person wants, right? Because it's like very isolated The temperatures are extreme, right? So you're not going to have a lot of people out there milling about. It's like a very large expanse of of space where I feel like would be easier to get to and from. But so Arizona borders Mexico and he mentions things like cartel business. Yeah. And he kind of alluded to, well, perhaps the cartel, like maybe he saw something he shouldn't have. And that's one thing that I'm like, "Mm, I don't know, because where Buckeye is, it's not very close to the border. Like I would say if he disappeared near Tucson, perhaps that's what happened. Just don't really buy that the cartel's running around 
buckeye desert i mean maybe they are it's just it it seems like kind of a stretch to me also i feel like if it was something as organized as a cartel his car wouldn't have been found right they probably would have done a better job so that was the only thing where i'm like "Eh, i don't buy that and then he did talk about what people do in the desert typically um and just yeah if daniel saw something he shouldn't have perhaps that's why he disappeared yeah, and he also mentioned that sometimes people will go out to the desert to shoot or drink, which I'm like, interesting. Okay. That's plausible. Like, as a teenager, that's normally where a lot of people go hang out, at least where I grew up. It's just, no one's going to bother us. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. Is that not what teenagers do, is find the place where no one will bother you? For me, it was an airport hangar that my friend's dad owned. Anywho, so Jeff even mentioned that he doesn't typically take missing persons cases, which makes sense, right? Because when you look at his particular field of expertise, but when he looked at Daniel's case and he spoke with Daniel's father, he decided to take the case. Yeah, and I'm glad he did. Yeah, me too. So I know last month we had talked about printing out missing person flyers and putting them around. Daniel's was one of the flyers that I've been passing out. So I'm really, really hoping that his family gets some answers soon. So another case that we had talked about is Najib or Juby Monsif. And just a quick reminder, he was last seen the evening of September 22nd, 2021. He's a 20-year-old autistic male with the mental capacity of an eight-year-old. He was last seen in Scottsdale, Arizona, near Frank Lloyd Wright and Via Linda. His is another missing persons flyer that I posted around. I actually uh, worked in that area a couple weeks back. So I stopped at some of the stores and put them up. A couple kind of new things that we found out is that he did have a PS4 and he would often play video games with his brother George and his brother's attending the University of Arizona. But his family doesn't believe that he would message or voice chat with anyone else while gaming. However, the police, just in case, have subpoenaed Sony for his PS4 and they subpoenaed Twitter for communication records for all of his accounts. On November 7th, Josie, his sister, had posted that there are theories circulating that he was lured out of his home from the internet. And as Amanda had mentioned, that his electronics have been thoroughly searched by forensics and they're being sent to the FBI. The family doesn't believe this, though. And so this is what she said specifically. With this, I would like to directly address the individual responsible for Juby's disappearance. We know you are involved in the disappearance of Juby. You may very well be residing near my father's home be in this Facebook group, or even come to the searches. This was also posted in a Facebook group about his missing person case. But anyway, back to what she was saying. Whether this accident was a poor decision, split-second accident, a moment of panic, or an act of violence, this road will come to an end eventually. You are putting my family through an endless nightmare. We need to find Juby, regardless of the outcome. We are asking for your help. We need you to lead us to him. We are asking you for closure. You can call the Scottsdale Police Department with an anonymous tip at 480-312-5000. Even if you are not directly involved but have any information, please find the kindness in your heart and bring my family relief. My father is issuing up to a $100,000 reward upon Juby's safe return. This also includes compensation for information directly leading us to Juby's whereabouts. Guilt is a heavy burden to carry throughout a lifetime. You are ruining your life, my family, and most importantly, Juby's life. Please help us. Oof. I mean, I feel like whenever you hear a family asking for closure, that specific phrasing, it's whether it's what we want or what it's what we don't want, we need to know. It's that not knowing that it's just, I'm sure it's all terrible, but the not knowing is like, how do you grieve? Should we stay hopeful and grind on and work hard to find you? Or should we be grieving? Like, where should we be? And you don't really know. 
Yeah, and I'm sure they're just kind of touching on both ballparks there. Like, today I feel like this. And she is posting every day. I don't know um, if everyone follows her on Instagram now. But she puts his missing poster flyer up every day. She's a good sister. And then also, his sister had posted on November 19th that the FBI, the Scottsdale Police Department, and the Anti-Predator Project are now involved with the case. So I'm hoping he is found soon. Yeah, we're still hoping for the best. So the last case update that we have is for Jelani Day. Just a quick refresher. Jelani Day was living and going to school in Bloomington, Illinois. He was studying to be a doctor. He was last seen on campus August 24th of 2021, and his car was found a few days later. His belongings were found in various places, and then his body was found about a week later, floating in the Illinois River. So we have a few updates, and then I guess you could say some elaborations from his mom. So there was a town hall, and it took place on November 19th. It was called Justice for Jelani Day. It was live on the Facebook page for Rainbow Push Coalition. And they declared November 19th as Jelani Day Day. We'll talk about it more, but I I liked what they were doing and like what their goal was for having this town hall. So a couple case updates. So a few things that his mother talked about during this town hall. On August 23rd, that was the last time she spoke with Jelani. On August 25th, she was made aware that he was missing and she reported him missing with authorities. The following day on the 26th, she spoke with the director that sent officers to her home about the timeline of his disappearance. So a couple things she talked about is his car was discovered in Peru, which we know was about an hour north of where he was last seen. His mother said that it's a sundown town and that he had no connections to anyone in Peru. So Lindsay's talked about this before, but Lindsay, what's a sundown town? So very briefly, sundown towns are places where once the sun went down, anyone of color was not allowed in the town. And often when you see descriptions, you'll see it's basically non-white people were not allowed in the town after dark. I disgracefully had first heard about that is a thing that existed when watching Lovecraft Country because they have a very like a very intense scene with a sundown town. And it's insane to think that some of these towns existed as recent as the 1960s. Like, that's shameful. The fact that, like, we had places that were geographically not allowing a type of person in the U.S. And so oftentimes, if a person of color was in that area after dark, they could be met with violence. So the idea that Jelani was there is very peculiar. And yes, we are talking about the year 2021. And I am sure Peru is no longer a publicized sundown town. But that does not mean that the core demographic of that area is not white people and that people wouldn't be staring at him. So just knowing that fact that that's the type of town that his car was found in, kind of makes you think a little bit more of all of the different possibilities of what happened to him. Yeah, yeah. And it's very clear something happened to him. It's not an accidental drowning because just the positioning of his belongings and where he was, there's zero sense there. And it's just crazy to me that that's the idea that they tried to entertain. Like, no part of me thinks that that's what happened. So also, interestingly, she wasn't notified that his car was found. They called her after they found it to ask if he knew anyone in Peru. And that was around 4.30 in the afternoon. 
But they never mentioned, well, we found his car there. They just asked her, does he know anyone there? And she's like, "Uh, no, I don't think so. Around 8.30, this is how she found out. She found out via a news article that was sent to her that his car had been found. And then that's when she went to Peru. So on August 27th, Verizon phone records were requested and his mother posted on social media asking for help in the search for Jelani. The search took place on the 27th and the 28th. So she's kind of organizing this, too. Sounds like Daniel's dad to me. On September 2nd, that's when his wallet was found. Carmen, his mother, was told that he might have dropped it. She does not believe that he was walking to the river and then dropped his wallet. That is not what happened. On September 4th, another search was organized and Illinois Search and Rescue was called. On that same day, that's when a body was found in the river. The information about the body being found was given to Carmen. They told her they found a body face down and severely decomposed. Also, that it was missing its upper and lower teeth. They mentioned to her that they might not be able to identify via dental records due to the decomposition. Maybe I need to research a little bit more about decomposition, but I feel like the teeth would still be there. I'm sure there are differences in the rate of deterioration of not just like your teeth, but your gums, right, that hold your teeth in. And I am not aware of loss during decomposition after drowning. So they mentioned because they may not be able to use dental records that they needed to do DNA tests. And the way that they would do it would be they'd take a sample from the tibia bone and then compare it to his mother, his father, and a sibling. So DNA was given the following Monday, which would have been September 6th. And the DNA testing, what she was told, could take up to four weeks before the results would be in. So what she ended up doing, too, is she gave the coroner details for the dentist so that they could obtain dental records and order them in case perhaps they could be used. On September 8th, 10th and 12th, Carmen contacted the coroner and wasn't able to speak with him or get a call back. So later in September, Carmen was told by her attorney that, and this is wild to me, that the lab that was processing his DNA was out of the chemical that they needed to process it. And they wouldn't know until September 15th whether they would even have access to that chemical. Wild. I mean, we're facing supply chain strangeness all over the country, but I guess you don't think about it in terms of like this kind of stuff. So on September 16th, Carmen contacted the coroner again and spoke with him. When asked why he didn't return her phone calls and if he had received her messages about the dental records, he responded that his phone had been giving him trouble and that he had not ordered the dental records. This feels like a very cavalier conversation. Like you get better customer service when you are like missing a package. And she didn't even know if it was her child. She was probably hoping it's not. And please tell me that it's not so I can keep searching. Exactly. Yeah. And he also had said that he didn't know yet whether they would have that chemical. And now this is, mind you, the 16th. So it's a day after they should know. So during all this, Carmen's watching the news about Gabby Petito and she's seeing everyone talk about her and everyone know about the case and all the news sources saying that they had a ton of help to find out what happened. And she felt like no one was looking for her son, Jelani. And at that point, she didn't know that the body was Jelani, but she was begging for help. And she just saw that here's another family and they're getting that help. I can't even imagine how that would feel as a parent to be like, but my baby Right. No one cares about mine, but they care about theirs. And we're not saying that one case matters more than another. It's more that everyone should have access to the help that was given. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like what we're saying is like it should be equal, not none for one person and everything for the other. It's just if it matters when someone goes missing, it should matter when someone goes missing. 
Yeah, and she said something along the lines of, like, he wasn't an influencer, but he put all of his work into becoming a doctor, right? Like, he's going to school to become a doctor. And it was like, well, because people are influencers, more people are going to look at them. And it was just, it really broke my heart. Yeah, it's interesting to think about if you ever go missing, right? Like, what are the pictures that people will have on the internet to look at to determine whether you are valuable enough to be looked for? And it sucks, but that's kind of what it was, right? Like, there was plenty there for news people to be able to share and show and go like, well, here, look at this, look at that, look at this about her, we read this, we found this, versus like an ordinary person who goes missing. Most people aren't documenting their entire life on social media. Like, look, cheese boards, my animals, my niece, and to an aggressive amount, the Weird Emporium, and True Creeps. That's my social media. Like, I'm not like writing journals on everywhere I am and everything I'm doing. I could see how that makes it easier to report on. But journalism shouldn't just be about the easy story, I feel like. Oh, that's absolutely true. So on September 22nd, Carmen received a call from the Peru Police Department to look at her email to identify some clothing that had been found the day before. I don't like this already. So two women found the clothing on a riverbank about a mile and a half away from where the body had been found. When Carmen asked why the area was not searched before, they didn't give her an answer. Initially, she said, no, it's not his clothes. But then she said she didn't know. They told her if it wasn't his, they wouldn't do anything with the clothes. And she pushed for it to be checked anyway. And it's a little odd that they didn't find the clothes the same day as the body. I feel like if you are a person who was buying your own clothing or living independently, like I'm assuming, I'm assuming, I don't, I'm not sure what his living situation was, but like he was like going to school. He was an adult. It would not be abnormal for him to have clothing that his mother was not aware of. Right. And what angered her is that she didn't know. So they were like, well, if it's not his, we're not going to do anything with it. And she's like, but what if it is? And they're just like, "Mm." so she's like, she had to push. She had to be the one to be like, well, I'd rather you look into it just in case. And she's like, that's not my job. And that's like the theme throughout this, right? You should not have to harass the police to do their job. So about an hour later, the coroner called. He had obtained the dental records. He asked if Jelani had went to a dentist in Alabama. She had said that she didn't know. Now, let's just go back for a moment. And I'd like to remind you of the fact that Jelani was 25 damn years old. So it's completely possible that he would be having dental appointments without his mother. So coroner asked if he had been to a dentist in Alabama. She said she didn't know. And he said, well, you should know it's on your insurance. That's not how insurance works. She said she didn't know, but he could have. Like, she just didn't know. And so he went over her insurance information and said that they will work late into the night to identify these dentals as Jelani. She asked, wait, why are you working on dentals? She was thinking that they were going to use DNA to identify him, right? And his response, are you ready to be mad? Okay, his response was, either you want to know this is your son or you don't. And like, bless this lawyer. Bless this lawyer. Because her former lawyer was also on the line, and I don't think the coroner knew this. But so they said... Who the fuck do you think you're talking to like that? This lady has lost her son, which like, yes, the appropriate response. Just one more time. Who in the fuck do you think you're talking to like that? This lady has lost her son. So the coroner calmed down after he figured out that that was her lawyer and then ended the call. So he called back and apologized and asked if she would be there on the 23rd at 9 a.m. to find out if the body was Jelani's. On September 23rd, they read the preliminary autopsy findings to them and identified the body as Jelani's via dental records 
and DNA. So here's where it gets a little bit strange, right? Because at this point, she didn't think they had the chemical they needed to test his DNA. And then she was also told that it was going to take a month or more for them to get the findings back once they got the chemical. It's the 23rd. As of the 16th, they don't even know if they have the chemical. They would know if they were going to get the chemical by the 15th. And we're now eight days later and suddenly the test results are done. This doesn't really line up. It was a 99.99% certainty that it was Jelani. They insinuated that he had done something to himself and that there was no trauma to the body that was found. His body had no skin, so they wouldn't know if there was bruises. There were no broken bones, and it was still waiting on toxicology. So on the 27th of August, Carmen had possession of his body, and it was sent to Chicago for a second autopsy. The doctor asked her, what happened to your son? She's like, come on, my guy. She said, I don't know. That's what I paid you for. Then he said, the only reason I can say this is your son is by the toe tag. There were no eyeballs. The liver, spleen, and brain were not present. The body had no genitalia and that he could not identify that the body was a person of color. And remember, he did not have skin at this point. So she was told that it was a desecration to a body and that it would have had to have been a crime. If it was before the autopsy, this was indeed a crime. So she went back to the first pathologist that had performed the autopsy. He said that the genitalia had been flayed. The brain was liquefied. The liver was liquefied. The spleen was mush. So then she decided to get a third autopsy. The DNA test is still pending. And so as she's talking about this, she's crying, obviously, because this is her child that she's talking about. So not only has he passed away in a way that does not seem accidental, but his third autopsy. And to like think of your child skinless, missing organs, their genitalia missing, like the fact that she has like the fortitude to push forward, I think is amazing. But so they had a service and they did bury him. And Carmen requested that the Illinois State Police take over the investigation. On September 24th, the case turned into a multi-jurisdictional unit. Multiple police departments are working together, but there's still no leadership. And she says, it seems like there's a detachment on who will take the lead of the investigation, which is just fucking shitty. Because what that means is that it's her. Like, she's having to hurt all these cats. There should be one person, and that's the person who she gets to reach out to to say, what the hell happened to my son? I say as I bang my notebook. Right. Well, it sounds like Texas Killing Fields all over again. Like, things happen in multiple places, so no one wants to take accountability and just take the case. Yeah, exactly. So Carmen has requested that the FBI take over. The behavioral analysis unit was brought in and they were brought in to analyze Jelani to figure out his mindset. And she said that he didn't need to be analyzed, but it would be helpful to find out what happened to him. She was upset because she says Gabby Petito wasn't analyzed. They just looked for her. And I think that's a really good point. It doesn't fucking matter why anybody did anything to him. Like it doesn't. At the end of the day, I find it very clear that like this was not accidental. So Regardless of why you are the victim, you are the victim. Right. And let's say there, there was some sort of weird accident, right? I don't think that's the case. But let's say there was a weird accident. There's still someone else involved that moved his body to the river. There's no way that he fell out of his car and rolled that far. You know, like it's miles. Exactly. So Carmen at this point is confused on why the FBI just can't just take over and oversee the case. And she's pushing for that to happen. And I have a fundamental just I'm just going to call it a general beef with police departments that refuse to investigate crimes because they don't want to. Right. Or or there's too many police departments involved and we don't want to step on their toes. So we'll let them do it. Yeah. I'm like, figure it out. I don't care if you like each other, but you got to play nice. Right. Right. So she also mentioned that his phone was recently found. 
And she was told that it's been turned over to the FBI, but she said that it hasn't been confirmed either. So that's just something she was told. And it also did power on. So it doesn't seem like it's like smashed or unusable. Hmm. And she's still awaiting information on the phone still. She also discussed that subpoenas for Verizon and Apple were delayed to be sent out. This poor woman. Also, that there have been replacements within the police departments since Jelani went missing. So when she is speaking to someone, they they can't be confident in telling her information because they weren't there or they weren't in that role at the time. So that's also frustrating on her end, which totally understandable. She's been given the runaround, misinformation, and incorrect information. Also, when she's reaching out for information, she's not getting calls back consistently or not even at all. She also finds it strange that the girls that found the clothes have, quote unquote, lawyered up, and she wants to know why. I will say that I generally do think that, like, if you're even tangentially related in a criminal investigation and you have the ability to do so, you should have an attorney. Oh, that's true. But I think from her perspective, it just seems like there's something more happening. Yeah. She also wants to know about the phone and who found the phone, where they questioned, where was, you know, more details about the phone, everything about it. So in one of the reports that she brings it in front of her during the Zoom call during the town hall, and she reads it and she says the cause of death was ruled as drowning. But then she says the next paragraph says, unfortunately, there's no specific positive test at autopsy for drowning. Drowning is considered a diagnosis of a conclusion with supporting investigation circumstances when a person is found deceased in a body of water. So she's like, we don't know if the cause of death was drowning. It's because they found him in a body of water. Because of the state of his body, they can't say with certainty that his lungs did indeed fill with water and he drowned. They're just going, he was found in water, he drowned. Just breaks my heart that she really truly doesn't know anything that happened. And no one, it seems one's willing to help find those answers until this town hall. So I really loved the community of the town hall because Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson was on it. And she gets on it. She's like, there needs to be a push for answers. So then she said there needs to be a call to action and commitments from representatives on the call. And so each person that was on the call, I mean, outside of his family, they represented some sort of organization. And so she went person by person, pretty much asking on the call, what are you committed to doing? What deadline are you setting? And each presented who they were and what they were going to do to help. So like, it's a long call. It's like two hours long. But they went person by person and they're like, I do. This is what I'm going to do. And then it would go back to her and she'd give a little bit more of what happened. And their faces when they, do you know how on a Zoom call, it kind of goes to the person who's talking. But whenever they'd say something, just their faces of horror at certain points. And I'm just like, thank you. Like, this was a really cool thing that was organized that hopefully with all these people doing their commitments will bring some more answers to this poor family. Yeah. So those are a couple of updates. We didn't have a ton. And again, we're not going to cover any new cases this time around because once you're done listening to this or you've already listened to it, we're going to have a Christmas Monsters episode. So if you're listening to the second, we hope you have wonderful holidays. We have thoroughly enjoyed creeping with you throughout 2021. And we'll, we'll see you next year. And a special thank you to our Patreons. We love you. I'm sorry, a little bit extra. And we really appreciate your support for the show. Should you want to also be loved extra? You could take a little peeksy at our Patreon. Amanda's looking at me, but I mean it. I'm sorry. We have favorites. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that are enrolled in our Patreon, as she said, we very much appreciate and love you so much. We thought it would be extra special to send you a little something for the holidays. 
So keep an eye on your mail. And with that, listen to Christmas Monsters. If you've already listened to it, then we will see you next year. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 